Let us now open our Bibles to the second psalm. Psalm 2. Let's bow before the Lord before reading his word. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give to us as we come reverently to your word the ability by the Holy Spirit's work within us to bring our thoughts and hearts and lives into conformity with what is here revealed. And surely it humbles us to read this psalm, and it is certainly a call on the part of your church for the prayer of the conversion of sinners in the nations but also, Father, for political leaders around the world. We ask, Father, that we would be mindful of the cosmic battle in which we are as Christians engaged and that we may be faithful not to think autonomously, but to bring all of our thought into submission to the teaching of your holy word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Psalm 2, this is the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord this morning, isn't it a wonderful thing to fellowship with him with these elements that he has provided? It is a peaceful thing. We are recognizing that we are at peace with God, that Christ shed his blood and that God is reconciled to us and we are reconciled to him, that his justice has been met in the cross of Christ. And so we come to this table this morning as those who, no matter what we may experience in life, are fundamentally stable because the rock is under our feet no matter what comes. We are those who can come to the table of the Lord and we come in peace and in stability. But as we come in peace and stability, we come in a world that is unstable, a world in which Pastor Saeed is imprisoned and tortured in Iran when Islamic terrorist groups take over large portions of the Middle East and make a special project of killing Christians in which in our own country we are becoming so morally degraded that we can't even understand something as simple as marriage and in which Christians are losing religious liberties with a swiftness that is breathtaking. But one truth that should give us strength in the midst of all of this is the sovereign judgments of God in history. His final judgment at the end of the world 
the fact that God rules, that He reigns, that He's upon His throne, and that these judgments in history point to that final judgment that is to come. That should encourage the people of God, and it should strike terror in the hearts of those who do not know Him. Now this second psalm speaks of the confederacy of kings of the earth against the Lord's anointed, and is certainly clearly pointing to the Messiah. And here we see the struggle in history between Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom and the Lord's victory in history. And so the preaching of this text is with this one thing in mind. Will you take from the message of this psalm this morning, will you take, will you take heart in the Lord's sovereign rule over the nations, over history, and over our lives? As we move in this psalm, the first thing we see is kings oppose the king. Kings, kings of the earth, oppose the king. Look at these first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The text represents the nations of the earth in tumult, commotion like a raging sea. And it says they plot in vain or plot a vain thing. They plot in futility. Now the term plot actually is the word that is used in chapter 1. You know the first psalm. In chapter 1 verse 2 when it speaks of the believer as meditating on God's law day and night. It's the same term. Only in this case... The wicked kings of the earth are meditating, musing, devising, taking counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. The nations of the earth are yearning after vanity, after emptiness, and it represents this mighty opposition to Christ. And I think that we do not adequately understand the total depravity of man and how deeply embedded in the mind and the heart of fallen sinners is native rebellion against God. And it is bound to show in nations and in governments. They're not exempt from this. And against the Lord and against His anointed, that is, against Yahweh and His Messiah, what blessing the Son of God is to the world, and yet autonomous men hate and oppose the Christ of the Bible. They rage against him like a tumultuous sea. And the opposition is deliberate. And the opposition is obstinate. So we have a confederation behind which is the dark prince of this world who in the end will be cast into the lake of fire. And it is the desire of those kings to break the cords, the, the bonds that would bind them to the living and true God. We read again in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us fling away the restraints of Almighty God and His Word and law. This is the malice of sinners against Christ in such a way that they will not have Him to rule over them. And they despise the Son's government and lordship. Sinners think that they are free when they are not fettered to God. But we sinners are only free when we are bound to Him with cords of love. Calvin put it this way, Let this therefore be held as a settled point, that all who do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ make war against Him. And that's true whether you are a king of the earth or a subject. But it is a vain thing, the psalm says. 
built on the rock, the church doth stand. Nothing and no one will stop the growth and final success of the kingdom of God. Now, keeping your finger here, if you'll turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts for a moment. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been taken prisoner before the council, and in verse 23, they are released and they gather together with uh, others in prayer and in praise. And we read in Acts 4, beginning in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what he says. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So as the early church is going through its time of persecution, the psalm to which they turn for their encouragement in Acts chapter 4 is the psalm that we have read this morning. This is the psalm they read. This is the psalm they turn into prayer to God. And as they remember the crucifixion of the Savior, they bring this psalm to bear because they recognize that from one perspective, the record of earth's rebellion against the King of Kings is what will take place until Christ returns. And so the church at every point should take this psalm as its encouragement, and especially in times of persecution. So we've seen that kings oppose the king. Moving in the psalm, we see secondly, the king's derision of the kings. The king's derision of the kings of the earth. Verses 4 through 6, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does the Lord do? They set themselves against him and against the the anointed, the Messiah. And the Lord who sits in the heavens laughs in calm repose at their arrogance, at their intellectual and irrational rebellion. As the old hymn writer said, thy foes in vain designs engage, against his throne in vain they rage, like rising waves with angry roar, they dash and die upon the shore. Now notice that it says in verse 4 that he who sits in the heavens laughs. He sits in the heavens. What is the psalmist saying to us? He is saying that God is transcendent, that he rules, that he reigns, that his plan cannot be thwarted by puny men, by mere creatures. And so he who sits enthroned in the heavens, ruling, reigning, laughs. Old Matthew Henry said, The perfect repose of the eternal mind may be our comfort under all disquietments of our mind. So what gives peace to our mind in the midst of this fallen world is the complete tranquility, transcendence, and sovereignty of the eternal mind. 
The Lord holds them in derision as he sits upon his throne. Hence, he ridicules his enemies. God holds their insolence and contempt, and they will be justly punished, he says in verse 5. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. His judgment will strike like lightning and peal like thunder. None can dethrone the sovereign God. And so we see thirdly, the king's king. The king's king. And that king, of course, is Christ. Notice the connection of verses 5 and 6. He will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury. How? Saying. Saying this in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now David certainly was advanced to the throne in God's plan. But a greater king is installed in Zion than David by God's decree. And that is Christ. So their opposition is in vain. Against their opposition, God places in the forefront his irresistible will and his irresistible son. And God establishes his holy one to reign over Zion And he reigns by his father's ordination. And these words regarding the eternal sonship of Christ are applied in the New Testament, such as in Acts 13.33, to the resurrection of Christ. So he is and will triumph over his enemies. Man proposes, God disposes. So the kings of the earth opposed God and murdered his only son. And what did God do? He raised him from the dead. He demonstrated the perfection of his sacrifice. He exalted him to the right hand of power. And he promises that his son will come to be judge of the quick and the dead, as we confessed in the creed this morning. God reigns. Kill us they may. Slander they may. But God's will triumphs. The kings of the earth do not triumph. The king's king triumphs. And again, if I may quote Calvin on this psalm, and his words are truly magnificent. As often then as the power of men appears formidable to us, let us remember how much it is transcended by the power of God. Jesus said, do not fear them who are able to kill the body, but him who is able to kill both body and soul in hell. Then we move along and we see, fourthly, the king's gift. The king's gift. That is to say, God's own gift to his own son. We read of that gift in verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so the son himself speaks, and he speaks of the gift in verse 8. Here is the gift. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. And so the gift that the father has given to the son who rules and reigns as mediator to the risen, ascended Christ, the gift is the gift of the nations. The extreme limits of the earth. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession, says the old authorized version. So Christ is the one with the Father from all eternity who rules and reigns and the mediator is entitled to the earth. And as the Son, He is heir of all things, and multitudes will be His willing subjects. And verses 7 through 9, I believe, are fulfilled in two ways. First of all, the nations are His heritage by conversion. 
The conversion of his people as God works to spread his gospel throughout the world and draws to himself his own, whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world in union with Christ, for whom Christ died. The Holy Spirit effectually draws and calls them from all over the globe until Christ comes again. And as he does so, he rules and reigns over the earth and The nations are his inheritance, and we go out and preach the gospel, and the Great Commission is fulfilled, and we see that he is the inheritor of the nations, and indeed the day comes, according to the fifth chapter of Revelation, in which we shall see this risen, exalted Christ worshipped with a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, and kindred and nation on earth. Will you be there among them, believer in Christ? Yes, you will be there. But also, this is fulfilled. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is also fulfilled by judgment on the unrepentant. Again, old Matthew Henry said, he has a rod of iron wherewith to crush those that will not submit to his golden scepter. Revelation 2.27, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessel of a potter shall be broken to shivers even as I receive from my father. So the last book of the Bible draws from the second psalm to speak of the mediatorial glory of Christ. And if the Lord is working this morning to bring you to himself and putting you through humiliation of soul, be glad that he is leading you to bow now. For it will be too late when he comes again in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And I quote Calvin again, It is fitting that we should be humbled in the dust before Christ stretched forth his hand to save us. The only begotten Son of the Father, raised from the dead, is promised by His Father in everlasting dominion. He is the possessor of the world, and He will save His people, and none can stop Him. He will extend His kingdom, and none can stop Him. The scepter of His dominion is a rod of iron with which He will shatter into little pieces His enemies like the breaking of a potter's vessel, and none can stop Him. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is true for the kings of the earth, proud and arrogant rascals. But it is true for anyone who denies the Son. The hard hearts of men like stone in God's hands are like sheer pots, little clay pots that he breaks in his justice. And sinners who have not yet come to Christ just just don't know. We Christians are coming to know as we understand the significance of the cross and how the judgment of God was born for us there, we're becoming familiar with what it means that God's justice is awesome and great. But the unbeliever though eternity is written on his heart, suppresses that knowledge. And so we see, fifthly, the king's warning. The king's warning. That is to say, God's warning to the kings of the earth. 
And here's the warning in verses 10 through 12. Read it, please. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The king's warning. So Jehovah himself in this psalm speaks to the kings and rulers of the earth, and he says, you had better be wise and heed my warning. You oppose Christ's government in vain. The government is on his shoulders. And here is the word, receive the instruction. If you're a wise man or woman, you're going to heed the instruction. And that instruction is, you better reverence my name. As he put it here in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Have we forgotten, I fear we have in large measure, have we forgotten even what it means to reverence God? Surely the nations have, but let us not. Charles Spurgeon wisely said, Fear without joy is torment. Joy without fear would be presumption. So when that king of the earth or a subject moves along and skips along merrily and happily with all of this joy, note my quote marks, and he has no fear of God, it is presumption. And the psalm says to the kings of the earth and to all who are lost, pay homage to my son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, says verse 12. O kings and presidents and congressional leaders and members of parliament and leaders in this world, there is only one hope, and that is to know God through Christ and to bow before him in reverence and faith and repentance, to know God in covenant friendship and to know him in reconciliation and love through the anointed of the Lord. Kiss the Son, not as Judas did, but kiss him in covenant friendship through the knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because otherwise his wrath will come. Again, a Puritan, the Son can be angry through a lamb. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the wrath of this king, this king of kings, will be as the roaring of a lion, and will drive even mighty men and chief captains to seek in vain for shelter in rocks and mountains. If the sun be angry, who shall intercede for us? There remains no more sacrifice, no other name by which we can be saved. Unbelief is a sin against the remedy. Ye sinners, seek his grace, whose wrath ye cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of his cross and find salvation there. When we hear in this psalm that God's wrath is kindled in a moment, we should not, we should not think that God's ans- 
anger and wrath against sin is, is somehow capricious. His wrath against sin is a settled characteristic of his nature. But his point is this, O you kings of the earth, you do not know when he will express his anger against your sin. And you who ignore his wrath are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. It was 1970, June, early morning about 6.30 on a Father's Day. And a train rumbled through the little town of Crescent City, Illinois. One hundred and eight car Toledo, Peoria, and Western Railroad. Thank God it was 6.15 on a Sunday morning. The tank cars were carrying liquid propane. They derailed. They began to burn. At about 7.30 a.m. there was an explosion that involved three tank cars that sent a fireball a thousand feet above Crescent City, Illinois. Twelve tank cars exploded, destroying the downtown, destroying 15 homes. At least 70 persons were injured, nine hospitalized. The damage estimated 1970, a little town, at $2 million. The first explosion, according to the records, blotted out the daylight, completely blocked it out. Other explosions continued until 11 a.m., 300 firemen, 40 from other communities, or from my, or maybe it was 300 firemen from 40 communities, now that I think of the details, came to put out the blaze. But they had to truck in water because the explosions demolished the water and the power lines. And there was a young lady there who became my wife later because this was her hometown. And every time that Vicki tells me this story, I cannot help but think a little, a little of the wrath of God. No one expected it. No one knew it would happen. No one would have dreamt of the destructive power. And she has told me it looked like the end of the world. And she still remembers who could forget. She was making coffee for the policemen and the firemen and the rescue people and the journalists because her home was the headquarters, not only because her brother was a sheriff, but because it was the one that was farthest out from town. So everybody was there. She was making coffee at the window in the kitchen. And she remembers this great explosion that took place and she felt the terrible heat come through the window that caused her to run away across the street to the school that was nearby. And people said the plume that went up from the explosions looked like an atom bomb. And this was just an explosion of God's created world. What must the direct and awesome wrath of God be? But it's really when I look at the cross that I ask that question. If it required Jesus Christ to bear the awesome wrath of God to save me from my sins, 
and the eternal Son of the Father was separated in some strange, mysterious way and shrouded in darkness and bore the infinite wrath that I deserve to pay forever, what must the wrath of God be? We just don't give thought anymore to the wrath of God. When men convince themselves not to believe in the judgment, they are apt to do anything. So don't tell me that it does not matter what a leader believes or thinks in his heart. What a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now we are in a battle, people of God, and that battle is cosmic in scope. And we do not give enough attention to the kingly office of Christ. We think of him as prophet. We think of him a lot as priest in this church, and that's right that we should. But we need to remember that he is head and king of the church, and he is king over the world. And we need to apply the kingly office of Christ to all of life. For example, when you vote, you will never hear this minister tell you for whom to vote. That's not my place. You will hear him bring those principles from the pulpit that you need to take with you into all of life and recognizing the kingly office of Christ, which includes the voting booth. And if I could send a message to the earthly leaders, it would be, Mr. Obama, the Lord of heaven and earth calls upon you to bow to his sovereign rule to his view of the world, to his revelations of right and wrong, to his law, to his view of marriage. Mr. Cameron, bow to Christ. Mr. Putin, kiss the sun lest you perish. Hassan Rouhani, bow the knee to the true and living God, Jesus Christ, the creator and the redeemer. And whoever the leaders may be and the governments, the nations derive their existence from Christ and you derive your authority from Christ. Your very breath comes from him. Supreme Court justices here, it is well that you keep in mind that there is a Supreme Court and it's not here. One of our Presbyterian fathers, Symington, says, It is the duty of nations and their rulers to have respect to the glory of Christ in all their institutions and transactions. No principle can less admit of dispute than that it is the duty of subjects to honor their king. And if Christ is king of nations and magistrates, subjects of the Messiah, they must be held bound in virtue of their relative characters to pay all possible respect to his honor and glory. And the fact that very few kings of the earth have ever done so or will until Christ comes again does not remove their duty to bow the knee. You say devils and wicked men and fools lead so much of the world, yes, but this does not alter their responsibility to bow. And the rights of Christ the King are unaffected by their foolish disobedience. So what do we do as the church of Jesus Christ? We preach the gospel. We maintain the truth. We uphold the crown rights of Jesus in all of life, and we be patient. Ephesians 1.22, God has put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things for the sake of his church. So the promise is that he is even using 
beheadings in the Middle East to serve his son and to extend his kingdom. Revelation 1.5 tells us that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so we say to ourselves and to all men, and especially kings, Calvin again, the beginning of true wisdom is when a man lays aside his pride and submits himself to the authority of Christ. Daniel 4.17, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Psalm 75.7, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And so our Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us this encouraging word in the midst of an unstable world. How doth Christ execute the office of king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And if you are here this morning, whoever you may be, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you are a magistrate or a subject, if you have not bowed to this king, repent, come to Christ in faith, come to the foot of the cross, His wrath need be kindled only a little. Blessed are they who take refuge in him. And God's people said...